0: With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com.
1: At the end of it, uh, you know I, I learned a lot and my team was wonderful and I'm grateful for everything that we went through and uh, I definitely came out stronger in the end.
2: Hi, and welcome to the 1CA Podcast. My name is John McElligott, your host for today's episode. And we're joined today by Major Lauren Hall, who was a uh, team chief who led the 478th CA Battalion Alpha Company in support of CAPE 20.1. This was deployment to San Pedro Sula in Honduras. Major Hall, welcome.
1: Hi, thank you. Happy to be here.
2: (laughs) I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about your background and, and where you're coming from.
1: Uh, sure. So uh, I started actually as a National Guard soldier and switched to the reserves. Uh, originally, I was an engineer officer. I actually went to Captain's Career Course as an MP. And then uh, while I was in Italy, I fell into a unit over there as it's civil affairs and fell in love. And uh, then went to the civil affairs Captain's Career Course in 2018. And here I am today.
2: That's awesome. And when you say here today, you're currently uh, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina in support of a, a unit over there, right?
1: I am. Yes, actually, I'm on an ADOS tour with USASOC G5, uh, working in the marketing cell uh, for, to help re- enhance recruiting efforts for ARSOF.
2: Congratulations on the progress you've made over the years and congratulations on your promotion. We are here today to talk about San Pedro Sula what that experience was like and the people on your team so we want to go through a bunch of questions first of all cape right so it's not just something you wear you deployed in support of what was called cape 20.1 please tell for listeners what is cape
1: so cape stands for civil affairs persistent engagement and the 20.1 is just the rotation that we're on so the intent of CAPE is to build and sustain broad networks for continuous operations. It's a really unique program within Usa reserves that models the SOCOM CME program. So we get to really live amongst the population rather than uh, do our operations from a base, which is one of the unique opportunities there, uh, which is why we got to live within San Pedro Sula rather than uh, Sotocano down in Honduras. So one of the differences with CAPE, too, is that the funding authorities and permissions allow us to actually live in the towns, and it's a it really is a once-in-a-life opportunity to be able to do.
2: That sounds really exciting and very different from a normal deployment. This spanned how much time?
1: It was supposed to be a nine-month deployment, but due to COVID, it turned into an 11 months.
2: Wow, okay. And um, people may be Relating in their mind right now to uh, Joint Task Force Bravo, uh, we had some leaders from JTF Bravo on the show many months ago. Your CAT, your CA team that's nested under JTF Bravo and its lines of effort, uh, what was the mission assigned to your CA team?
1: So we shared the same LOEs. Uh, so we had uh, LOE one with strengthened partnerships, LOE two was counter transnational criminal organizations, which is TCOs, uh, and LOE three was build the team. So we had specific partnerships that we would work with uh, and we would strengthen our team while doing so to enable the local authorities to be able to have certain effects depending on what the specific intent was at that time or guidance from our leadership. Uh, but the overall goal is really to work ourselves out of a job. Uh, and to do that, we really had to build the legitimacy in the government to be able to qu- counter TCOs.
2: And as a CA team, uh, you guys are very well trained to understand the civilian population. From what I've read of San Pedro Sula for a while, it was one of the most dangerous cities in the whole world. How would you describe San Pedro Sula? What was it like during your time?
1: So it was a little intimidating when I first heard that that's where we were going to go, because it was known as the murder capital of the world and also known as one of the migrant centers for children. Uh, But we also learned that it's also one of the economic centers for Honduras. And when it came to actually living there and being a part of the community in a sense, it really started to feel more like living in New York City Um, is the best example for myself being from upstate New York. So there are certain areas uh, that you would wanna avoid, stay away from certain times of the day that you don't wanna be be out and about. But where we actually got to live, it was very safe Uh, But the one unique thing that was took a little adjustment to uh, was that, like, you know, we'd go to a coffee shop in the morning and there would be uh, security with weapons and pretty much any place that you went, there was security guards that had guns. So getting used to that environment was definitely different. Overall, it was a very friendly environment and not as intimidating as the newspapers had made it seem before getting there.
2: Well, that's great to hear. Uh, I'm glad you guys were safe during your deployment there as well. So a lot had changed, right? So you were on the ground. My understanding is you're there for almost four months, and then you were put on lockdown because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you describe, did, for example, did everything come to a halt? Um, How did you guys adjust what you're doing?
1: So for civil affairs, like right at that four month period is really kind of a crucial time period, right? You're closing up the projects that you fell in on and you're really getting the ball rolling on your new projects. So unfortunately for us, a lot of the new projects we were starting uh, did pretty much come to a halt. But the positive was that a lot of the projects that we were still wrapping up, we were able to still kind of continue. Actually one example, there was a school that had received some um, construction equipment And they were so determined to, you know, finish that project. And like, we were still using technology like WhatsApp and uh, phone calls and text messages uh, to get pictures and keep updated on their progress. They were actually threatened by the local police to be shut down multiple times because they were so determined to get that project completed because it meant so much to them. So a lot of the projects kept going uh, despite the situation. Uh, And then it actually worked out that some of the the networks that we had built allowed us to still keep um, like an ear to the ground, understand the situation, and be able to report that to hire. So although operations stopped in certain ways and slowed in others, we were able to still maintain our network and continue that communication, which really benefited uh, when... Uh, the, we got the approval to start switching some of our focus to providing medical supplies and support of COVID-19. We already had those networks, networks established and able to continue working operations with them. We were able to jump right back into our mission. So
2: a lot of listeners are probably coming from the perspective of being in the United States or being in Europe, not in Honduras during the pandemic. So could you describe for listeners what the scene on the street was like? Were people frightened out of their minds about what was going to happen with the pandemic? Did storefronts shut down? Were markets closed? What was it like on the street?
1: It's a Great question. Uh, yes, uh, now being in the US, I can tell you, it was a very different, uh, different experience when we were over there. Um, they really did go on lockdown. Uh, I can't really speak to the individual's uh, feelings on everything, I know there was some Uh, Some of our partners were saying, you know, they were uncomfortable with the situation and everything. Uh, But a lot of it for our team was being shut off from everything. Uh, So all the businesses were closed. Uh, They put security, uh, the local police and military. They were arresting anyone that was out without official approval from the government to be out on the streets. So it was essential workers only were allowed to be traveling Uh, There were days that there would be no access to food or anything, um, and then they would open up the grocery store or the gas stations on certain days, depending on the day of the week, and then you being allowed out depended on your uh, either your driver's license number or your vehicle number, depending on... time we were up there for a few weeks and they kept kind of changing their methods so it it was uh we had to watch the news on a regular basis to be able to know if we were allowed outside that day or not uh there was actually one day we wanted as a team to just get some fresh air and just we thought maybe if we went for a little walk around the block we would be fine and uh the apartment complex security guard actually wouldn't let us leave uh it was different (laughs) to say the least uh so being back in the States and still able to walk around and get fresh air is quite refreshing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, a lot lot more limiters that we have here. And then uh, I would assume a a much higher level of healthcare the healthcare system that we have here was much better than what you saw.
1: Yes, so the ventilation systems over there, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but at one point in time, I believe it was like, they had seven or 10 within the entire country. So uh, prior to COVID, uh, my team actually did do a tour of the local hospital, which was supposed to be one, it's in San Pedro Sula, which is one of the largest cities in Honduras. So it should, you would imagine, have some of the best facilities. And uh, there was a individual that was hand squeezing a ventilator for uh, their husband, who we were told had fallen off of a cliff and she's standing there. Yeah. And this is pre-COVID. and have enough ventilation systems so um in the sense of reaching the hospital capacity uh they were already over capacity so covid definitely took a huge toll
2: folks you've been listening to an episode of the one cf podcast with major lauren hall when we come back we'll talk about whether her mission measured up and how so and obstacles that she faced and how her team was able to overcome them we'll be right back
0: Everywhere you look, there's a barrage of emails and information telling you what everybody has done, is doing, or plans to do, all in excruciating detail. But access is only half the battle. You also need information presented in a usable form. But that takes work, and the more information you have, the more work it takes. Tesla government takes on these issues so that your office or agency can fully exploit the data you already have. Our knowledge management experts organize and curate your internal data. Our open source research augments your knowledge base with strategic insights from our globally experienced team, and our data visualization turns complex data into compelling visuals while our community building makes sure everyone benefits by leveraging (laughs) collective knowledge. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com.
1: Do you have an idea for an upcoming podcast or know someone who may be a good person to interview? Contact us at capodcasting at gmail.com.
2: Welcome back to the One CA Podcast, and our guest today is Major Lauren Hall. Earlier you had mentioned some of the activities that you were doing for projects, uh, some of the support that you're providing, financial support or product or service support for the local population. When you shift from measures of performance like that to something like a measures of effectiveness, what was the lens through which you were looking? What were those MOEs and how do you measure up?
1: Measure of effectiveness for us was really building the resilient networks uh, that lasted through the COVID pandemic and they were able to continue and survive. And uh, even the team that followed us uh, were able to maintain some of those partnerships and those networks to enhance their own efforts and uh, the challenges that they faced. So that was definitely an MOE for us.
2: That's great to hear. Were were you guys doing this in close coordination with USAID? Who were some of the other partners along the way?
1: So USAID was certainly a close partner of ours. Uh, They do amazing things. Uh, we also had uh, the local military. There's a um, one of, sorry, there's a military unit right there in San Pedro Sula that we worked often with. Um, a goal of ours was to always include the National Police with our efforts. And then another great partner of ours was the Rotary Club in San Pedro Sula. Uh, that was one of the new partners that we made towards the end. And the team re- who replaced us uh, also was able to continue. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a really a beneficial one for us, along with there were quite a few um, medical entities that we worked with.
2: OK, great. I'm wondering if you could share with uh, listeners now the obstacles that you faced. COVID-19 was a very big one. What were some of the obstacles, including COVID-19, that you faced um, during your deployment and how did you work to overcome them?
1: So for me personally, uh, one of the top ones was not being a a fluent speaker in Spanish. We only had one fluent speaker on the team, and he was my team sergeant, uh, Sergeant First Class Hernandez. So having the team sergeant be the primary Spanish speaker was definitely a challenging obstacle that we had to overcome. It's really hard to be the translator and also the subject matter uh, expert on a lot of these interactions as he had been on these type of missions before. But my team did really great uh, learning Spanish while we were there and building those relationships by uh, tying Spanish key phrases in as often as we could. And that definitely helped the local populace kind of uh, appreciate the effort that we put in. And then we would have to work on uh, our systems at the end or our processes to help uh, Sergeant First Class Hernandez, uh, you know, fill us in on any of the Spanish conversations that we might not have been able to translate in the heat of the moment.
2: Yeah, language is a big one. So uh, in addition to Sergeant Hernandez, did you have local interpreters to support you?
1: We did not, no.
2: (laughs) Okay. Um, And what were, uh, when you measure the level of language that's required, you think, or that would have been uh, more helpful, two, two, two plus, two plus, three, the the way that the military likes to measure um, someone's ability to speak and read and write in a foreign language, was that as critical, or did you find that there were a lot of people in San Pedro Sula who spoke English too?
1: In San Pedro Sula proper, like the metropolitan area, there were a few that spoke uh, spoke English well enough, and then those would usually be my primary contacts. I would talk with them more often for coordination pieces and everything. Uh, but as soon as we started getting to the outskirts, which tended to be the you know the schools, the uh, medical facilities that we would interact with. They only spoke Spanish, so that all fell solely on Sergeant First Class Hernandez. So I would definitely say like two, three pluses, three threes are required, and then a third with a two just to be able to kind of fill in the gaps every so often uh, to really be able to not slow down at all. (laughs) Two other issues that we had. uh, One was the transfer of authorities. There was kind of some lack of information as we switched from AOB having the main authority to JTF Bravo. They had maintained a lot of their information on Palantir. And uh, once we switched over, we no longer had access to that data. So uh, that was a huge challenge to overcome coming in, which then we just kind of really relied on our partners and, you know, we're pretty transparent with them in the aspect of like, we're a new team, you know, please, you know, explain to us, how did your relationship work before? And just kind of casually had them fill us in on bits and pieces that we weren't able to gain from the team um, during the Riptoa and everything. Although the outgoing commander or, uh, Team chief and uh, NCO were great about staying in touch with us as we transitioned and everything. So we really appreciated that open communication, even once they were home and you know with their families again. It helped a lot.
2: That's tough, though. So you had no access to their reports, their data at all. It was just like starting fresh. You kind of talked to them once in a while, but you really were almost flying blindly for a while until you rebuild those relationships.
1: Correct. And from my inst- understanding, unfortunately, this isn't a new thing. It happens pretty often to civil affairs teams. So.
2: Okay, well, that's a good cautionary tale to uh, anyone else who's getting ready to go somewhere to know where those data are kept and how they can access them. Um, what other obstacles did you guys face?
1: Uh, so for me, uh, I had the, the, the personal challenge. Uh, I was a, a new mom and uh, leaving my daughter for the first time for that significant amount of time uh, was definitely challenging. I had previously been a stay-at-home mom so working on the interpersonal skills of working with three grown men on a close proximity, uh, you know, I really want to give them a shout out for, you know, handling some of my mom stuff that just, you know, I'm, I'm a mom at my core and all those, in some ways it's really good. In other ways, it was things that I had to overcome on my own and figure out how to, Grow as an individual and as an officer. So there were challenges every day with that, uh, along with other things, of course. But at the end of it, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot and my team was wonderful. And I'm grateful for everything that we went through. And uh, I definitely came out stronger in the end.
2: Thank you so much for sharing that because I think everyone faces obstacles like that, but they almost never talk about them, especially what you face as a mother or a father. So kudos, thanks for, for being open to share that with everyone and uh, talking about how you overcame them. It's really clear that you learned a lot from your deployment going over to San Pedro Sula. I was wondering if you could leave some parting advice for any other CA teams who may be preparing to go to a place like San Pedro Sula in Honduras or elsewhere in, elsewhere in Central America. How should they prepare to do their research or to do a sort of left seat, right seat with the the existing team or previous team?
1: Uh, Yeah, some of our uh, common ones that we would speak of quite often was definitely having the opportunity to learn the language a bit more. Uh, One way to work on that too prior to getting there is just start practicing reading the news in Spanish. Actually learning their form of the language would be very beneficial and being able to keep up with the current news and understanding the environment would be critical. Uh, The other one is, you know, driving, Uh, definitely get familiar with aggressive driving and defensive driving, be prepared for some car accidents because it's bound to happen one way or another. And then we were actually a team that we had, we had weapons with us, right? We were able to conceal and carry, and a lot of people are unfamiliar with the comfortability, like being comfortable, right? We can all shoot weapons, but to have them have the right clothes, have the right gear, go ahead. And, you know, it's worth spending the money um, yourself or, you know, working with your command to get that equipment as soon as possible, to be able to start practicing with it and uh, get comfortable with what you want to be wearing. Uh, Once you're out in front of the populace, it's, it's a bit too late. Then the other one obviously is really from my story before is understanding your team uh, that not just their capabilities, but also their personalities. There's these great personality tests out there. Highly recommend that your team takes them and you take that into consideration because not only are you working together daily, you're living together daily. You never get away from one another. There is no... I'll see them in the office in the morning and you get to unwind by yourself at night. You are constantly wanting another's roommates and there's no, <laughs>
2: <laughs> whether you like it or not.
1: Yes. So understanding what makes them tick is really crucial to survival for, you know, nine months that turns into 11. <laughs> And then, of course, you know, the the doctrine stuff of, you know, doing the proper analysis of the country that you're going to to really understand the politics and the economics that you're about to get involved with. There's really, yeah, the, the history that led to everything to really understand what makes uh, the partners that you're going to be working with tick. You know, th- there's a lot of history there that you can learn from.
2: Thank you so much. This was uh, an amazing amount of information, very, very helpful and eye-opening, I think, for a lot of listeners about what you did in San Pedro Sula, what you and your team went through, um, how you were able to leave some better improved projects behind, and and how you were able to uh, respond to what happened during a massive pandemic, which really changed things uh, a wild left turn while you were there. Major Warren Hall, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: The Civil Affairs Association is calling for papers. As a green force that operates in gray zones, how should civil affairs understand competition? How would a global civil-military network be a geostrategic game-changer in the struggle with authoritarian powers for global dominance? To address these questions, the Civil Affairs Association and its partners invite civil-military professionals to send original papers by the deadline of September 3. The top five papers will appear in the 2021-22 Civil Affairs issue papers, and authors will present them virtually at the CA Symposium this fall. The top three papers, as determined by symposium participants, will receive cash prizes. For more information, visit the CA Association website at civilaffairsassoc.org. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment one CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.
0: In civil affairs, your success depends on getting the right information to the right people at the right time. Whether it's foundational information for a team about to head out on a mission or putting together a map or other data visualization to brief a general or an ambassador, Tesla Government Solutions and staff can help. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you're adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com.